Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today is... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1982 film Blade Runner. I've seen this many, many times. It's like on my all-time list, it's like close to top 10 as far as sci-fi goes. Read the book many times, seen the sequel many times, so I'm well immersed in this, but you have not seen this film in quite some time. Yeah, I actually, I saw it when it first came out. That's how long ago it was. And it's, it's kind of interesting, the, the first impression I had, and, and reading, I've also read some of the voluminous commentary on this film. Um, uh, I remember distinctly being, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, kind of, um, uh, jarred by and uh, uh, it made it difficult for me to follow the film the uh, narrative the, the narrative that they had um, uh, Deckard provide throughout the story and for this episode we watched the I think it's called the final cut yeah you um you watched the final cut which right. was in 2007 which right. is Ridley Scott going back again and making changes I have I'm old school. I have the DVD of the director's cut, which was from 92. Gotcha. They're pretty much the same thing. I think in the final cut, he adds more couple scenes, but 92 and 07 are fine. It's the 82 one, like that theatrical one where it has that Chandler-esque voiceover narration, adding yes. more to the film noir element, but... It's like, jarring. Well, I, I it, don't it, like it's, it. It's very flat, because I know Harrison yeah. Ford said he was miserable making this film, so you could tell his heart was not in that narration... Yes. And half the time it's just him saying obvious things and his delivery is really bad. And then it, the ending has that really bad happy ending where they're him and Rachel are riding off together. Up, Spoiler alert, but they're riding off together and he finds out that she has an open-ended lifespan. Yeah. And he's and that, interesting enough, a lot of that aerial footage was like B-roll footage from the helicopter shots Kubrick used in The Shining. When these, when Jack is going up to the Overlook yeah, Hotel, interesting, interesting. they used like stuff he didn't use in the movie to yeah. show them riding away in this picturesque mountain landscape. So but, yeah, I, I do like, uh, and I think I remember being put off by the happy ending in the original when I did see it back in the eighties, uh, because the whole atmospherics of the film it's very dark, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you don't have too much information about exactly why this is some kind of post-apocalyptic world. Mm-hmm. Right, you get a lot more information in that regard in the novel. Some yes. kind of a nuclear war happened, and there's great, as it were, masses of radioactive uh, fallout or dust that continually circulate around the globe. And this is, has had obvious deleterious effects. So people are wanting to go off off world, world as they say, and it's explained a lot better in the book. Um, the film, we know something like that has occurred, and, and it seems to be, um, to all appearances, the reason people are moving off-world is because it never stops raining. Yes. And it's never a light. It's always dark. Yes. It's, it's never daytime. So I, I, do like the, I do like the director's cut or the final cut or whatever much better than the original because uh, that narrative, it would, it would pull me out of the narrative, actually, mm-hmm. and make me think, oh, I'm watching a film. No, you don't want to be. You want to be immersed in the story, right? So, yeah. good, good on him for removing that and, yeah. and removing the far too happy ending. I yeah, think it's 
crucial to the kind of the tragedy of the story of Roy and Rachel that they only have four years to live. And I think he really, that Hollywood happy, happy ending just sidesteps that tragedy. Right? Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's one of the things, like your criticism is the way a lot of people feel about this movie because it, it's, even though it's considered today a classic, there are still a lot of people who like, oh, I don't really care for it. It's all style and no substance. It's nothing but a film noir in the future. That's all it is. And I I think because they've, maybe they've seen that theatrical cut, but then there are people who are younger who've see, even seen just the director's cut or the final cut or whatever when they've seen, and they still feel that way. And I feel sometimes maybe it's just because of the theatrical cut. Maybe they're just quite missing... Um, you know, all the deeper themes that this movie has. Yeah, and you know what? It might be in, in both of our cases that we don't see that superficiality because we didn't read the book. And the book gives you a lot of background. The book gives you a lot of background on, uh, uh, as it were, the technology of the creation of, where in the book are called androids, in the film they're called replicants. I think that's the better term because they are produ- products of biotechnology, right? Mm-hmm. They're essentially um, uh, uh, mass-produced and biologically engineered slaves for the humans, the normal lifespan humans, that uh, go off-world. And they serve various purposes we have hints of in the film and a little bit more detail in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they do labor, for instance, uh, hard labor, where the humans don't necessarily have to do that. They serve purposes, uh, uh, um, uh, sex slaves, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that we also see in entertainment in general, uh, that we also see in, in a story like Westworld, right? Yeah. Where there were, in that case, mechanical androids created uh, for those purposes, right? Yes. And for purposes of maybe making this a little more palatable for the users, uh, we see that they've engineered these creatures in a way uh, to make them seem alien and also perhaps to make them less likely to band together in their own defense. They are not given, uh, at least it seems like it, as we see actually with the uh, story arc of several of the characters in the film, it doesn't turn out this way. But they have been purposefully engineered to lack empathy. And that uh, uh, makes it easier to detect them should they run away. And that's kind of the premise of this story. And it also, I think, I mean, this is me kind of inferring from the book and the film. Uh, it, it makes them less likely to, um, like I said, band together and rebel in some way. Although we see... That is precisely what happens with Roy mm-hmm. and Pris and the three or four others. I forget how many that is four. Yeah. Four. And they had killed about 40 human beings in the process of escaping. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I like I like that feature of the story. And it is more pronounced in the book. It is in the film, though. So I think that gives it more depth than... My first reaction was, and then you're saying this is kind of a common reaction, even to people that have seen the two yeah, later the, version. See, people, I think the criticism people have who don't like this movie is that there's Deckard's not a very good guy. 
none of the humans are very, you know, the thing is, even though I think that's one of the point is that the replicants are more sympathetic than the humans. The humans are just all just, you know, the corrupt. I mean, there's a narration of that um, in the theatrical cut that Deckard has about the police chief, you know, that shows that the police chief's not a good guy and he would be a certain type of cop today. But, um, yeah, I think that's maybe I could kind of I've seen that, but I think that there's a lot more to the movie than a lot of people. But we've been talking about it already. This is based on the novel "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" by Philip K. Dick. And just a little, if you don't know who that is, he's also his stories Minority Report and um, We Can Remember it for You Wholesale, which is turned into Total Recall and A Scanner Darkly. He's had a bunch of his stuff previously adapted into movies and. When we last time talked about Arrival, how Story of Your Life was based on that, they're pretty faithful, but like you've said earlier, this is a lot different than the novel. Both are good, but one of the things that you talk about, um, that there's you feel sympathetic for the replicants in the movie, but in the book, you really don't. And um, I want to bring up a little quote that Philip K. Dick had. What Ridley, Scott, and I saw sheep, and by inference, Blade Runner as being all about, to me, the novel's replicants are deplorable. They are cruel, they are cold, they are heartless. They have no empathy, which is how the Voight comp test catches them out, and they don't care about what happens to other creatures. They are essentially less than human entities. Ridley, on the other hand, said he regarded the film's replicants as supermen who couldn't fly. He says they were smarter, stronger, and had faster reflexes than humans. So you can even kind of see that he took it in a much different direction. But in the book, like you talked about that one scene later on when Pris, the one of the characters, is cutting up the legs of a spider. Yeah. And she just wants to see if she can walk, and she's getting like a perverted joy out of it. And you, you yeah, watch it's, that. It's it's very it's creepy, and you know she's taking a pleasure out of it. And you you could get that good thing that wasn't in the movie because then you would have no sympathy for them. Yeah. Oddly enough, it's only a spider, but it's for me the most disturbing film uh, scene in in the book. In the book, yeah. Um, it, it's a great example of uh, what Mister Dick talked about his desire to show that these uh, replicants or these androids were completely lacking in empathy. Uh, the closest, closest parallel I can think of is sometimes uh, cat owners will see uh, their pet cats um, play with a mouse or some other small creature, clearly not because they need to eat, but because they either derive, as you put it, joy or some form of entertainment out of, for lack of a better word, torturing the little thing. Yeah. And we see Pris doing that with this spider in this film, or in, in this part of the book, I'm sorry, um, where she cuts off one leg at a time as she's having this conversation with the other characters in the room. And watching to see if the spider can still walk and it it, it really drives home the point that uh, uh, these um, androids in the book replicants in the film but androids are not sympathetic characters at all and you don't have the same the same story arc in the book that you do have with uh 
Roy more particularly, and, and Rachel too, mm-hmm. uh, in in the film where they go from being this these kind of uh, uh, empathy lacking entities to forming some uh, ability to empathize with others, and I think the uh, penultimate scene where that's really shown well in the film is with Roy as he's dying. Yeah, the famous tears and rain monologue. Yeah, and he spares Deckard's life Mm -hmm. for no other reason, apparently, than he's come to empathize with him in some way or another. So I'm torn. Um, (laughs) I I, 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 I like the exploration of the completely uh, empathy-lacking entities that is in the book. But I also do like that sense of growth that occurs in the film. And it provides a, a lot of pathos in that mm-hmm. you sympathize with the replicants. They are put in a, uh, ultimately in a role that is much more human. They are analogous to slaves in, in United States history to some extent. Hunted, but persons deserving of moral consideration Mm -hmm. deserving of respective rights and i know that's explored more in the second film i haven't seen it to be completely honest with you but we'll discuss it we'll get to it at some point i did promise you that but um i like that parallelism that analogy there and i think that's what gives the the film actually humanistic depth Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to, my, like I said, that initial response I had back in the 80s. I did think, oh, it's just kind of slick and stylish. And, you know, you've got some 80s uh, uh, clothing here. The mm-hmm. big shoulder, Rachel's big shoulder dress. You know, yeah. I kind of laughed at that and the hairdo and stuff like that. And you kind of got distracted by that. But the story was there. And just to get back to Ridley's <laughs> choices, I think it comes out once he takes that narration out. And definitely when they take the happy ending out. Yeah. And I think another thing, the book really, the society in the book, it's really like almost obsessed with empathy, not just with hunting down these androids, but there is, and they completely admitted this in the movie, but there's this religion of mercerism. Yeah. Where you kind of go into this virtual reality, and then there's this character named Mercer. And he goes up on a hill and, you know, almost Christ-like where people are stoning him and beating him. And every time he gets hit with the stone, you feel it. But you're not the only person in this reality. Anyone else who logs into the system feels that too. So it's this collective empathy for, for this. As you're, you're, not, you're not the only one getting hit. You're not the only one bleeding. Everyone else is. And it's not even just with that mercerism. There are these empathy boxes where you log in and they'll hit you with like a certain specific feeling. Like another thing they got rid of in the movie is the fact that Deckard has a wife. Yes. And one of the things early on, they're fighting and he's, you know, she'll just, she, she's getting into a fight. She says, why don't I just hook up a certain feeling in the empathy box, which is absolute happiness and content with my husband. And that's a cert, that's an actual, you know, setting you can set. So you hit that and you'll have that exact feeling. And not even just with that, but there's also extreme importance on animals because mm-hmm. this it was called World War Tournaments. And I guess that's 
it's almost drove all animal species to extinction. They're very hard to come by. So they were talking about how for a while it was by law that you had to take care of an animal. And it shows that, and it's considered if you kill an animal, that's just as bad as killing a human being. And so you have all these things where the society is, in that book, is extremely emphasizing empathy. Yes. And it makes you ask the obvious question, exactly why are they trying so hard to emphasize empathy? And it may be, uh, once again, I'm inferring from the actual story, but it may be there were, uh, there were uh, events that happened in this cataclysmic war, this nuclear war, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, for some reason or another are eroding people's empathetic abilities. We have hints of that, and somehow or another the radiation might be causing that over the long term. So you see this kind of uh, almost full-scale social uh, uh, emergency uh, 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 project uh, forming, uh, attempting to uh, uh, reinforce our empathetic abilities. Um, yeah, I, 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 I kind of, I kind of regret if, that they did not include Mercerism or the empathy uh, machine uh, in in the film. It's it's interesting, particularly the Mercer simulation, because you do go in. And you you not you, you, you share the experience, uh, not in the normal way that we would we would sh- share by empathizing with another person, right? Uh, we still empathize, as it were, at a distance. In the Mercer machine, you empathize. You are Mercer, mm-hmm. and everybody else is also Mercer, and your your minds meld. And, and there's a point there where his wife says, you know, you can share the successes and the failures and the tragedies of other people from the pers- first person perspective. That's very interesting to think of because that's almost an expansion of the notion of person. Right. It's got religious connotations. Right. Uh, you, you, you heard sometimes uh, certain religious mystics will say, you know, I am all people in some sense or another and they're usually talking about empathy and feeling others other people's pains typically but you can feel their successes too they say um as if it was your own equally important as your own but literally (laughs) in the mercer machine as your own and in the movie another thing that you know with the replicants you sympathize with them or at least you know make, make makes them feel human is they all have implanted memories. Yeah. With Rachel, she, you know, that she specifically has memories that Tyrell's niece had when she was very young. And you even see the with pictures. She says, well, of course I'm human. Look at this picture I have. And the other character, uh, the actor's name is John Bryan, but it's the guy with the mustache that we see in the very beginning. I forget his name, the character's name. Yeah. But um, he's, you know, one of the things he's upset is when his... He gets, his house, um, his apartment gets broken into. They take his photograph, and he's very upset about that. So it has this feeling of, you know, I have memories, I have photographs. That may, does that make you human? Does that you know this shared memories and experiences? Yeah, I, I feel human because of that. Yeah, um, it, 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 it may. It, the fact that they implant memories makes you ask why they would implant memories. Because as I was just saying a little earlier, um, they feel more comfortable using replicants as slaves um, or in the chicken heads as something like slaves because they're stunted in some way uh, either 
because of the radiation or because of purposeful genetic engineering, right? But at the same time, it looks like they want to make them more relatable and maybe function a little bit better in their role as slaves. So why, how do they do that? Apparently by implanting memories. So you've got this entity that's no more than a year or two old, but has um, been, uh, has, download, has had downloaded into their uh, mind or their brain uh, a complete lifetime of memories. In, in Rachel's case, it's the niece of Tyrell, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that raises another, uh, that has connection with a, a, another set of very interesting thought experiments uh, in the history of philosophy. Before I get to those, though, but it does uh, raise the question you, you raise. Well, since they have these memories, right, and they're just like our memories, first-person memories of your entire life, um, things you've experienced, people you've known, your family, friends, your school career, whatever, right? Isn't that sufficient to have them count as uh, persons? Because clearly they're biologically, I'd say they're human beings. I mean, um, we don't know the exact details here, but yeah. for all intents and purposes, they look like they're human beings. They have muscle, they bleed when they're shot, right? Yeah. But are they persons? And I think the answer is yes, right? And this is one of the factors in the film that militates, that I like in the film, that militates toward making them more sympathetic as characters, right? Because they've, they've had this, these lives thrust upon them in a way. And from their own point, from Rachel's point of view, she is that niece. And she has just as much a claim to that based on those first person memories as the real niece would. Yes, right? definitely. Hate to see them go into a law court uh, trying to figure out who gets the inheritance. I, I yeah. wouldn't want to be that judge. Yeah. Solomon may not be able to figure that one out, but from a first-person perspective, they're both the niece. Absolutely. And then what I think when you talk about replicants and memories, one of the things you also see who has a lot of pictures in their apartment is Deckard. Yes. And you, when you see it, it's by his piano, and the pictures look like from another time period. They look like early 20th century. And yeah. I, I, we might as well get into it now. The big question that nobody can agree on, not even the people who've made the film, is, is Deckard a replicant? Yeah. And the thing is, there's even, we in the director's cut, you don't see it at all, I think, in the theatrical cut from 1982, but you see you know, he sleeps or he looks like he's visualizing a unicorn through a forest. And I think in your final cut, you've probably seen quite a few scenes of those. I think there were two. Yeah, I think there's only just like one little scene yeah. in the director's cut. But there's yeah. that. And then the very end, his partner, Gaff, as, um, once again, spoiler alert, as, as he's leaving the apartment with Rachel, he sees on the floor a little origami unicorn. And it's supposedly meant for Deckard. And like, well, how does Gaff know about that? Yes. Like, how is right. he seeing into his memories? It's a very internal first person. How, how could he possibly know about that? Yeah. And the theory is that, well, Gaff knows he's a replicant, and Gaff is familiar with uh, uh, memories and other kinds of experiences that have been implanted in him, and that, I guess, would include these unicorn dreams. Yes. Um, and then you have visually, although apparently this was just a mistake, uh, but visually, you've got the little hint there in the film that he's a replicant. Or there's a scene where he and Rachel are together, and 
you can uh, you can see his eyes start to do that glowing. Yeah, that all the replicants have. Right, and it's just a second. And I I think I remember reading that uh, uh, Scott said it was a mistake, or no, it, uh, Harrison said it was yeah. just a mistake. I kind of got I aligned myself wrong for the shot, so the darn light went in there. They apparently put lights. <laughs> on the camera to shoot kind of a beam directly in front so you could get that glowing effect. It's a great effect, by the way. It's a cat eye effect. If anybody's seen cats looking in the dark, you can see their eyes glowing. Um, I thought it was actually um, contact lenses. (laughs) But that's all he did. He just put that light on the camera. Um, So that's a little hint that he is. He's a replicant. Um, the, The general character story arc he shares with Roy I think he also is something of a hint he goes from being basically kind of unsympathetic and just hey I, I've got a job to yeah, do I, need I have to no qualms about killing him right to having a lot of sympathy for him uh, at the end there I mean that scene with Roy is very powerful very powerful um, but also he's developed love for Rachel right by the end so hey if Replicants can, you know, as it were, evolve or, or develop in that way over the uh, course of the story. It seems like so could he. Interesting parallelism. Um, now, I don't know what I, I if he is human or not. I mean, and, and you can't rely on the memories, too, because, hey, he's got a lifetime of memories. So what? So do the replicants, right? Yep. And he's got that similarity of having all the old pictures. So there's really no way to answer the question, but... I'm almost tempted to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because, uh, as it were, the moral of the story is what's important. Development of empathy. And developing it, I guess, on your own as opposed to having mechanical aids as are so prominent in the book. Yeah, in the book. Um, I think that's the key thing. And maybe, maybe the message of the film is there's only one way to actually develop that. You can't implant it along with memories. It has to actually be something that grows out of real lived experience. Yeah, Yeah. and in the movie, not even just with their memories, you can see the replicants be human, not only with um, Roy Batty's relationship with Pris, that there's a genuine love, and after Pris gets killed by Deckard, he sees him actually grieve over her, but not only with his act of saving Deckard at the end. And even Rachel having this affection for Deckard as well and she actually shows up and saves him at the end from killing being killed by yes. one of the replicants right and it, it which goes to show you toward the end of the film here i think that the question i'll just reinforce this again the question of whether or not characters are replicants or not is completely besides the point morally mm-hmm. yeah and touching back to what we were talking about earlier um about experiences you can you know, experiences and memories of what you've experienced. It's also, I think, really communicated well with the motif of eyes in the yes. movie. The movie starts with, you know, as we're seeing this, you know, L.A. Sky, uh, cityscape with the smokestacks of flame, you see an eye. And, you know, the Voight Comp test, which tests empathy, which is, you know, tested to determine whether one's a replicant or not, it's focused entirely on the eyes. Roy Batty goes to... Um, Chu is the name. He needs the he develops the eyes for the replicants, and he says to him, "If only you could see what I've seen with these eyes." And even when he kills Tyrell, it's brutal because he just 
gouges, gouges out, out his, his eyes. eyes. So this, you know, I think the eyes are all about, at least what I felt, it was more about the experience. Like, you know, replicants have experienced these things and they feel that, you know, like with his tears and rain monologue, you know, what I've experienced, what I've seen, that makes me human. Yes, in particular fear. Mm-hmm. Fear of being pursued because you're an escaped slave. Yeah. And I also think there's a, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think there's a little bit of symbolism in the fact that they're, the replicant eyes glow. Because, you know, there's the old, the old uh, saying, right, that the eyes are the doorway to the soul. Well, light gleams out of their doors, showing that they're, there's something in there. They're not mm-hmm. just biological organisms. They are. And uh, so we're getting, we pretty much run down the list of everything I wanted to discuss. Um, before we sign off, is there anything else that you want to bring up? I think we've been pretty thorough. I can't think mm-hmm. of anything else. How about you? Nope. Um, people are probably wondering, why aren't we talking about 2049? It's like, well, another episode, we're going to do it. But yeah. it's, there's too much in there that we can't, we can't just do it like two movies in one episode. I didn't want to do so thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Philosophy at the Movies.